When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. China is reopening while the West is on the brink of a recession. To me, one of the most bizarre macro crossroads that we've ever been standing at. Is the Chinese reopening going to wreak havoc with the recession narrative? That is the question of today's Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Stino, sending to you live the 11th of January, hot on the heels of another positive trading day. We've got the S&P 500 up by more than a percent. Everything just barely related to China, is rallying today. And I'm pleased to be joined by Harry Milandri of MI2 Partners. It's uh, great to have you here, Harry, for a discussion on China and the US. Hello, Andres. How are you? Good. So, Harry, first of all, you, you wrote to me earlier today that you've done a lot of reading on China this week. Um, I've, I've tried to read up on China as well myself, given what we see across assets linked to China. So what do you make of this reopening story, first of all? Well, I don't have uh, a, a closed form convincing answer about whether or not we should run with this on risk assets. I don't know what to make of Western market risk assets right here, right now. Um, this time of, you know, this this point in a calendar year, uh, I'd rather wait and see, you know, where markets will jump because, you know, the, yeah, there's a great story that China's reopening and some people may not have been positioned. Um, Chinese equities are incredibly cheap, Chinese tech stock particularly so. There's a reason why they're that cheap, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I think that what I've been reading about was, you know, the, the backstory and the question of whether there are uh, hidden liabilities that were fueling this massive Chinese growth that we've had for the last, uh, you could say 20 years, you could say 10 years, depends how you look at it. Um, but it seems to me that there, there are potentially the seeds of disaster in the enormous growth we've had for 20 years. And my reading list has been about, you know, the question of who financed China's growth and whether they have a problem going forward. So that's one thing. Now, you know, it's definitely the case that if you haven't factored in the possibility of a opening, reopening in China, then this is coming as a surprise and it should be a bullish item. And it's got to be bullish for energy commodities, for example. It's got to have some impact on that comes at the same time, of course, that we just reintroduced new sanctions on Russian crude. And you know, I know that you've interviewed Alexander Stahl, um, mm. who's an excellent voice on this question. I've, I've read what he said, and I'm, he's convinced me 
Um, there's going to be Russian crude looking for a home. But most of all, um, for Russian crude to get to global markets, they have to ship it now. Um, there is There probably isn't the shipping assets available to the Russian Federation to move as much oil. So lucky we had uh, so much additional crude produced by other producers in the last 12 months. And will that be enough to cover what might be 4 million barrels per day of additional demand coming out of China? Don't know. So one of the things I've noted, Harry, is that China built up uh, material inventories of gasoline towards the end of last year. Um, and I always look at China as a nation of traders or craftsmen. <laughs> yes. um, they, they, they know that they have to deal with issues like commodity purchases ahead of time. Uh, so I guess they've at least partly utilized the window of opportunity before the reopening, which makes this story a little less clear, even though I agree that it ultimately has to be a bullish story for energy commodities, this Chinese reopening. But currently, Harry, we have a, if not grand reopening, that at least a reopening of the second largest economy in the world amidst what is probably the most well-announced recession in the West. That cocktail is kind of bizarre, isn't it? Um, I think there is a, a word for it called decoupling. So what do you make when you see such a decoupling of China relative to the West? Is it tradable? Is it something that you should be on the watch for? So all other things being equal, I'd be tempted to apply some kind of analogy to the law of thermodynamics. You've got a, a place with a hot which is hot for economic activity, and it should be attractive to capital and other places which are cooling in economic activity, and they should be less attractive to capital. And you should see that express very aggressive moves in FX. Um, I'm very suspicious of this analysis. I mean, I'd have given you this analysis six months ago, but with what I've recently been reading, I and also the, all the symptoms you have of a sizable dollar hunger in Asia, so you see anecdotal reports of this, that uh, Asian businesses are struggling to get hold of dollars. Of course, if you give people something like 600 basis points of reasons to finance themselves out of dollars, um, uh, especially given you can't, you know, if you're a Chinese business, getting hold of money from the, from the official banking sector was, uh, was not easy. It probably made more sense than we can actually understand to try and access that money from international markets. So now I, I wonder who's owning, who owns a Chinese bank CD and hasn't bothered telling us. And that Chinese bank CD might be 600 basis points better than what they'd have got in dollars, but you don't know whether it will be repaid. Um, and then that will have knock-on consequences. So I, I'm not sure. I think it's just way too early to fully understand. And yeah, the start of the year, everyone wants to, you know, fate for jour, place their bets, right? So these flows can be enormous. There's, it's all going through the market right now. I'm going to wait to see how that settles down. And then, of course, right now, we're one day ahead of, I think it's, it's CPO tomorrow. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. So any CPI number has the capacity to absolutely wreck my personal account. <laughs> At any <laughs> given point, they could, you know, you just get one that's 500 beeps higher than expected, and boom, S&P's down 3% immediately. Um, so with all that, I'm not, I expect people have taken reduced bets ahead of that, 
and we've got a lot of noise in markets right here right now yeah so i'm, I'm just going to wait for a month or so see before i get any real steer out of price action mm. I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving parts in opposite directions right now, which makes it tricky to call the shots. If we um, if we look at this Chinese reopening story um, in the context of this Western potential recession, um, we know by now that most professional asset managers and money managers tilt negative in their positioning on equities relative to benchmarks. Yeah. yeah. So do you think the Chinese reopening holds the potential to sort of alter that positioning among big players? It's 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 set to make them very regretful. I mean, nobody's going to re-enter their Chinese positions quickly, and these things are going to race away from them. So, uh, you know, this is me focusing specifically on China and not on global equities. I just read BlackRock's um, 2023 kind of analysis paper, you know, the year, the start of the year, New Year paper thing, and I was struck by everything being underweight or neutral. <laughs> and I thought, how exactly can you be invested everywhere you look? Like, if you're if you're underweight and neutral, everything, the things you're neutral on, that's what you're long of. Yeah. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. Um, there are only over a couple of sectors, and they were sectors I do, I'm already overweight, like energy and stuff like that. So these these things have a potential value traps, right? There's potential for everyone to get this one wrong because we're all crowding into the same market segments. Um, I, I I don't think it tells us very much about the near future. It tells us that the market is a funny sorting mechanism and people will squeeze into trades that think they think makes sense and they'll get caught. Um, we'll see, right? Mm. So I noticed that uh, one of the good old meme stocks, Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, rose was it around 40% in today's market uh, action. Um, it seems like the market is doing everything Jay Powell told it not to do just a week ago, Harry. Um, is it time to maybe roll out the 50 to 75 basis points hikes per meeting again, or what do you make of it? So Jules, Julian and I both have contacts among Fed watchers and we do our best to keep up with them. And uh, it's, it's very interesting, actually, all the Fed watchers are uh, outraged, outraged at the market's irrational exuberance, to quote some previous Fed governor. Um, in practice, I think it's only so long you stay short for without being uncomfortable. And this market has the capacity to squeeze everybody out of their trades. I wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised. Now, um, I say that, and I, I just had a look at the Stocks 50, for example. Stocks 50 is trading on prospective P of 12 and a half. I'm not sure that's great, but in the relative to the trading ranges of the last 10 to 20 years, that's a bargain. So it's hard to persuade people. If you're going to be short of this market, you ain't getting any shorter at this point. There's no news in that. The thing that could spook you is, is being forced into that momentum, forcing you into trades. And Now, uh, I am not convinced that makes any sense. Bed Bath & Beyond is a stock that I have been short of. Don't at me, right? But I'm, I'm very glad. Today, I'm not short of it. It's a miracle. <laughs> Um, and the same is true for AMC and all those things. I'm not short of any of those today. And if they rally up a long way, I'm, I'd probably look at shorting them rather than getting longer them. 
Um, that's a weird bias that people have at the moment. Um, do I think people should be getting long of risk assets here? No, but uh, I, I see what, what I'm thinking about is that there's a generalized wealth destruction that's been in train for a while. And anything which isn't destroyed is probably a good thing to buy. Because so, so much wealth is likely to be destroyed by the end of the day. Mm. So, you know, do I like BASF? Not hugely, no. But is BASF going to exist in two years' time? Yeah, probably. Although it may have more operations not in Germany than it has in Germany in the future. <laughs> I think that's a fair point, Harry. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I've introduced the so-called bored ape room myself when it comes to the Fed reaction function. I think it's roughly 12 months ago, Justin Bieber bought his bored ape NFT for around $1.3 million. And it's currently Ouch. trading around 75K. And I've said to my clients, I'm not betting on the Fed pivot until that damn bored ape NFT is worthless. Um, so let's see whether that rules uh, rule holds. Uh, I have my doubts watching the price action at the moment. Harry, um, I, I always find it amusing to read these uh, 23 outlooks from investment banks, in particular when they write the exact same thing, all of them. Uh, and I've tried to to go through most of them um, during the well, latter well part of last year. Well done, you. Yeah, um, <laughs> at least I've tried to sum up the conclusions, um, mm -hmm. and it seems to me that the conclusion is the exact same for most of them. They expect a very weak Q1, a subsequent pivot by the early summer, and then a better second half of the year. So, is the good old contrarian rule then to buy assets now and sell them? towards the second half of the year. You know, I can see how the trade may well work. I don't want to put that trade on myself. Um, the barbell I had on kind of reflected my, I, I don't want to own anything that I don't think there's underlying fundamental value right now. I think we're in a kind of wealth effective uh, extinction event that a lot of claims on future consumption are going to be extinguished um, and will, will turn out not to be valuable, not just the board apes. Um, the board apes may well be valuable for all I know, but I'm pretty sure that not all of those claims, which are currently outstanding, can be. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the Zoltan piece and what, you know, how Zoltan Poznar has been writing about global markets recently. Maybe you saw, maybe you didn't, but the general gist is that there's a realignment of geopolitics and that war is inflationary. And and I, I have a lot of sympathy with that kind of perspective. Um, we had a much more conducive environment for asset prices in the previous 10 years, where we had access to all global resources, including those in the Russian Federation and China. 
and we, we, we encourage greater globalization, greater uh, specialization, and great and substantial trade flows and capital flows. And everything is going into reverse. To me, that makes a cake smaller. And the residual value of the cake is what asset is a return on assets. So if you have a shrinking cake and shrinking residual value, kind of bodes badly for asset prices and that's sort of why i've got a combination of argentinian sovereign debt <laughs> to put my that's right people i'm that stupid but uh, the argument for that is they've already haircut it they've already already kind of punished investors and the thing yields very well and, and incorporates a lot of bad news um and then the other other part of this bible is i own a whole bunch of um inflation-linked, long-dated tips. And I own those because I suspect inflation will be haircutting quite a lot of our spending power going forward, even if it's coming down now. I guess the ultimate point is that the Fed has to address wage inflation now, um, but and it is doing that, but there will come a point where it becomes painful, where they're being asked really difficult questions. Um, that point will happen in the next few months. Uh, if, if inflation surprises to the upside, fails to come down as much as we expect, then there'll be a problem because the Fed will have to deliver another hike, as you were hinting at just earlier with your question. Mm. Indeed, Harry. I have to ask you, did you buy those Argentinian bonds during the penalty shootout of the World Cup final? No, I did not. <laughs> I, I was I was watching quite interested. I thought this could be good for sentiment. But, you know, I, I bought this stuff ages ago and I'm likely to own it for five years. Um, I may well own it through the next Argentinian restructuring. Um, <laughs> which may only be a matter of time, right? But, um, yeah, I, I think this is a difficult environment to keep wealth intact. And if you if you come out of this with a five or ten percent return over the next five years, you'll have done really well. Mm. That's it. So, Harry, we have the inflation report coming out uh, tomorrow in the U.S. Uh, it's obviously a widely anticipated report. It's been a massive market move over the past three to four months in a row, uh, and. I get the feeling that more and more pundits lean to the downside for this yes. CPI print. Uh, maybe that's a driver of what we've seen in equity markets this week as well. So what do you make of the sentiment around inflation before the big number coming out tomorrow? Absolutely no doubt about it. A lot of people are talking about the whisper number coming in low. Uh, the whisper, whisper number is low, I should say. Um, so that may well be what we're seeing. We're just seeing everything repriced to reflect that risk. Um, I know a fair number of people who've have lightened up on risk. I know my colleagues have lightened up on risk. Uh, whenever I see a big pivotal number like this, um, my, my first instinct is to try and derive information out of it. Um, I do think people are expecting the number to be low. If we get a low number, and every move reverses, that will tell us an awful lot about what's happening here. If we have this counterintuitive failure of risk assets into a low number, that will tell me a lot more than a, a, a good CPI where we have a 2% rally in, in S&P. Mm. Um, so that, that's kind of how I'm, I'm looking at this number. I want to get a better sense of the market's line of least resistance, path of least res resistance, which way it wants to go. Mm. 
Um, and do I think CPI is going to come in lower over the next year? Yeah, of course it will. We had a huge inflation impulse. It's coming out of the system. It, it will come down. The thing is, we have a whole bunch of workers who've had real wage reductions. It's, it's all over the Western world. Uh, in the UK, I just saw a headline in the UK saying that UK civil servants, 100,000 of them are going to, are in favour of striking. Um, it's not surprising that what we're, what we're seeing is governments trying to encourage real wage reductions among workers and workers are trying to resist that. Um, it seems to me almost impossible that we could have uh, this thing, a soft landing in that circumstance. The, the Fed may well be called on, other central banks may well be called on to tighten just to keep the ratchet there to prevent second round effects. That phrase, second round effects, you remember that, don't you? <laughs> I, I do, but I don't think I was born when it was used last time. The first time, the first time round. <laughs> the first time, yeah. Yeah, the but, 90s, but, uh, come on. Yeah. Maybe you weren't as active, but go on. Uh, I, I was probably wearing a diaper at the time, but uh, Harry, um, I, my, my little research shop is uh, headquartered in the headquarter building of one of the biggest unions of Scandinavia. And um, they've been extremely vocal ahead of the wage negotiations starting this spring that they want to be compensated for the increase in energy prices. Yeah, uh, And that is the first time I've heard a union talk about energy prices throughout my entire adulthood. So this could be a game changer for inflation if they actually manage to negotiate wages that compensate for this increase in, in energy inflation in Europe because it's been violent this, uh, this year and last year uh, when it comes to energy inflation. So if we look at historical analogies, um, what do you think will happen if these wage negotiation rounds end up in, say, 6 to 10% inflation inflation from wages. So it just means that the the process of, of pricing out the big inflationary surge will be slower. Um, we're going to, I, I look at break-evens, I think break-evens are too low. Dollar break-evens are way too low. We're not, we probably won't have 2.5% inflation, whatever. That's, that's what's discounted on 30 years. I should I should look it up. I'm, I'm going to trust my memory. Something like 2.5% inflation. I think we're going to see uh, numbers above that in the foreseeable future, significantly above it. And it will take more than two years for this impulse to get squeezed out. And more to the point, if you're asking me what the real meat and potatoes of my medium term and probably MI2's medium term view is or longer term view. It's not so much about this cycle, but the next one. Um, I think you could argue that in the 70s, what we did is we had this energy price impulse. We, uh, we accommodated to some degree, but it started to fade. Now, as it started to fade, we moved into recessions. And at that point, uh, central bankers took the view that we didn't have to have that recession and ease too early. And the net effect was we then entrenched more inflation in the system. I'm not against inflation, but I'm pretty sure, I, I, my bet would be that rather than fight inflation down to 2% again, we're going to give in and let it be higher than that for the decade. And that would help us deal with the fact that we now have debt to GDP numbers above 100% in a whole bunch of important countries. Um, 
So I, I don't think there's any real way around that. Like the central banks can tell you that they won't tolerate inflation. But if we don't tolerate higher levels of inflation than we're used to, we're going to have very large interest rate expenses on fiscal on our government budgets for the foreseeable future. And we're going to have budget stress. I think the only way to get that debt out of the system is to allow inflation to burn it up. And the, that process involves real wage growth, not keeping pace with inflation. The, the better way of handling that is to have real wages undershoot inflation to some degree and come down. Um, and that's going to be, it will cause friction. Mm. <laughs> We're going to have unhappy people. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. It, it sounds like it's better to issue bonds than to buy bonds over the next 10 years, at least if you're right in, uh, on the sort of underlying inflation dynamics of, of such a, a wave of inflation that we've experienced. Um, Harry, I've looked into inflation cycles over the past is it 180 years? Bank of mm -hmm. England has an interesting database great, on inflation. Papers, great yeah, papers. Go, going way back. And it's actually very tricky to find an inflation wave of the magnitude of what we experienced in 21-22 that does not end up in a double-top inflation scenario. So is this linked to wages or why is that dynamic so fierce? Because uh, usually there's something geopolitical going on. There's some, some underlying problem which is sufficiently significant that we can't just extend and pretend our way out of it. And in this particular case, we have yeah one of the classic things of the Bank Underground papers I read, um, uh, if, you're, if you're referring to those uh, pointed mm. to, was pandemics. Uh, mm. You kill a bunch of people and then you have a labor supply problem. And it's amazing, you know, what, the Black Death was one of the big improvements in real wage compensation in the UK uh, and caused all sorts of havoc for the existing order and broke broke some of the feudalism which existed back then. Um, I would argue that we have two events happening simultaneously this time around. We have that pandemic event which has ladled huge quantities of debt onto the onto governments all over the West. But in addition, we also have a geopolitical schism between us and uh, people to the East, the EU and the Russian Federation. Um, and this problem is, a, you know, seems to account for 2% of GDP minimum, right? We're going to see defense spending going up to 2% across the EU. And we're going to see infrastructure spending going up. We're going to see, and this is going to happen all the way across the world. So to my mind, there's, a, there's an underlying inflation. There is a reason why this, there is an inflationary impetus there. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not a temporary effect. Um, and we can make it temporary. We can set policy in such a way that we run the economy as weak as possible and make it very hard to get pay rises. But it isn't going to put people in a great mood. Right? There's going to be huge social battles, huge fights, 
huge congressional fights, political fights because of it. It's going to have side effects. But if I want a wage increase, I've heard you say that I should eat a bat if you get my reference, right? <laughs> Start a pandemic and you'll get a wage increase. Um, joking aside, Harry, um, it's obviously very interesting to talk about this long-term inflation outlook. Uh, it will be one of the key themes that we will continue to uh, watch on Real Vision uh, over the course of the next years. But if we look at the short term, um, We've had bond yields sliding all week. Uh, that's been a puzzle to me, given that we have this Chinese reopening bet ongoing. Uh, but it seems linked to this disinflation expected already tomorrow in the CPI report, but also in the months ahead. So when you look at bond positioning relative to what we discussed on equity positioning earlier, do you find um, another view among your speaking partners when it comes to bonds and the positioning? I think a lot of people have taken the view that we have, in fact, I thought Jeff Gundlach commented on this earlier. I think PIMCO made the same point. Of course, PIMCO would. Their business is, is intrinsic, is completely focused on bonds, right? It, 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 that's, that's what drives everything. But we, we have an environment yet now where bonds had been ex-yield and now they have a yield. Uh, everybody who's traded bonds for the last 40 years, and I'm one of them, right? I'm a bond guy, not an equity guy. Um, is struggling to control their hand, not buying everything they see. Right? You've got a recession that you're expecting. You've got, there's all sorts of great reasons why. I mean, tell you the truth, think about it. When was the last time you saw positive real yields and linkers? Um, until this recent move, we spent 10 years with either zero real yields or negative real yields. These things are bargains compared to the history. Uh, me personally, I think that's a good trade. And the only question is scaling in carefully because real yields may end up going higher over time and, and I'll end up losing money on them. But as a near pensioner, um, as a near pensioner, I've got to think about that future, you know, uh, obtaining yield into the future. And I can't help but thinking lock, locking up my inflation risk is a good idea. So I'm, I scale into those trades. Um, we're in a cyclical bond rally at the moment, I'd argue. And once we get through this, we'll go into the next secular trend. And the secular trend may well be higher in yields. But here and now, cyclically, bonds are rallying. And I'm not really prepared to fight that too much. I want I want to buy dips. I don't want to I don't want to kind of argue with them and say no. It's too much inflation. Don't do it. I kind of leave and lean in the same direction as of now. I wanted to bring in a comment uh, from one of our members, Harry, um, I, and I think it's a great question mark surrounding this Chinese reopening. Um, Corey asks us: Is this China reopening even going to offset? the expected reduction in demand from Western consumers. I mean, if we reopen China, the factory of the world, does it matter if the end user in the West is not buying anyway? So, uh, you know, 80% of consumption is probably done by about 20% of the population. Um, I'd argue that the current uh, configuration of of cash flows uh, actually is surprisingly supportive of consumption in the United States. I think we're now looking at interest payments from the federal budget, which are worth something like 700 billion a year. 
those things are going to triple over the next few years. So there's an auto-stimulus effect offsetting some of the recession impacts in certain places. If you're a wealthy pensioner in the US, uh, you're actually getting better off, right? If you, you, your assets are yielding more and more and the federal budget is paying you cash. So that offsets some of it. Um, I'd, I'd also you know, moderate how much I think China's reopening is going to get front-loaded. I suspect the right way to think about it is, like, if, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere in the winter, I'd be careful how much I reopen if I have a COVID problem. <laughs> I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd go a bit slow. And my guess would be that we see more Chinese reopening, proper reopening happen in the springtime and that it accelerates. And so some degree we're buying the rumor um, and you've got to be careful doing that. The data may not support you in that trade early. Um, mm -hmm. I think it is right, but like if I was looking at Chinese data to, 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 to pay me, I'd be a little nervous. <laughs> Fair point and a great way to conclude this discussion, Harry. Um, I can mention to the audience out there that we will release the second edition of Steno Signals uh, at Real Vision tomorrow with a window into my thinking on how to play this Chinese reopening across assets. It's out tomorrow on the Real Vision platform. But to sum up, Harry, um, cyclically speaking, inflation is heading lower, but there are still signs of uh, sticky wage pressures that may sort of last uh, throughout the decade ahead. At least they're going to be larger than um, in the decade that is just behind us. Uh, and it is something that you need to assess in your portfolio construction. Um, the 10 years behind us are not going to repeat themselves as far as we can see. Harry Milandri from uh, MI2 Partners, a great pleasure to discuss the Chinese reopening and the ramifications for global inflation with you today. Pleasure is all mine, Andreas. Before I leave you, uh, we need the meme of the day. And um, one of my clients uh, woke up, it seemed, this week from New Year's to a load of rallies in China-linked uh, assets and kind of asked me, is China open? Question mark. And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's what it's all about. Um, so if you've missed the rumor, um, then it may be too late. Uh, I'm also in the same camp as you, Harry. Uh, I don't really buy that this is a grand reopening short term. My chips will be placed um, on China in three, four months from now. Uh, that was it for Real Vision Daily Briefing today. My name is Andreas Steno and uh, my colleague Mackie Lake will be back with more tomorrow. See you there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.